From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, and for Terry Gross. Today, actor Sam Waterston. The original Law & Order series is back, and he's back in the role of District Attorney Jack McCoy. Waterston also co-stars as former Secretary of State George Schultz in the new Hulu series, The Dropout. Also, writer A.J. Bame tells us the remarkable story of Walter White, a civil rights activist who risked his life investigating lynchings in the Deep South. White was descended from enslaved ancestors and was proud of his black identity, but his fair skin enabled him to move easily among rural whites and get stories of racial violence that shocked the nation. White went on to head the NAACP. Bame has a new book about White. And David Biancooley reviews Julia, the new HBO Max series about Julia Child. The original NBC series Law & Order, which ran for 20 seasons before ending in 2010, is back. And with it, our guest, Sam Waterston, who returns to the role of District Attorney Jack McCoy. Waterston has appeared in more than 100 movies, TV shows, and theater productions. And at 81, he's still busy. He co-stars in the Netflix series Grace and Frankie as one of two men who leave their wives to pursue their love for each other. The series' final season wraps up this spring. And Waterston plays former Secretary of State George Schultz in the new Hulu series The Dropout about Elizabeth Holmes, whose blood-testing company Theranos collapsed in fraud charges. Among Waterston's other memorable performances are as a network news executive in the HBO series The Newsroom and as a war correspondent in The Killing Fields, which earned him an Oscar nomination for Best Actor. Well, Sam Waterston, it is great to have you. Welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. Um, so you're back on Law & Order. Uh, going back onto the set, was it like putting on an old glove? I mean, you did this show for 16 seasons before. <laughs> It was uh, extraordinary and strange. Uh, it felt really weird to step back onto what would look exactly like the same old sets, the same furniture, the same books, the same linoleum on the floor. I wondered whether to do it or not do it for a while when, when, when the possibility came up. And, but the minute I was back there, I thought, what a fool I would have been to have missed this. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been fabulous. But I have to say also, before we get into any of this, that it feels kind of weird to be talking about personal concerns in my career at, at a time like this. Uh, what, while we were getting ready to, to have this conversation, I was listening to um, a fresh air program about an expert on Russian-American relations and the whole vast... Um, subject of our dependence on fossil fuels and what it's doing to our climate and what it's doing to our international relations uh, is so big now and it's being expressed in horrible violence in Ukraine and it just seems really weird to much as it matters to me and much as I love it to be to be talking about um, you know my latest TV show uh, well, I will tell you, I mean, at Fresh Air, we have those conversations practically daily as we uh, consider what kind of shows to, to present to our listeners. And we're very much aware that what's unfolding in Ukraine is on everyone's mind and trying to hit some kind of a balance. But yeah. Sure, life does have to go on and we need to uh, rejoice in the, the living of it. And we need to be th thankful for being alive at all. And 
and all of that wonderful stuff. But um, I, I think even if we're going to talk uh, almost exclusively about my career, uh, you know, part of my life calling is to be on uh, the board of Oceana, advocating for the oceans and fossil fuels, which are the effect of which are being felt in Ukraine heavily right now, uh, are being felt heavily in the oceans too, and plastic is choking us. And so it feels to me like, since it's inescapable in my own life, that it, it it's not wrong if a little bit of it bleeds over into a conversation that's about other things. Sure. Well, I will tell you that 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 you being on the chair of the board of Oceana was on my list of things I was going to bring up with you. Um, you know, oh, good. Celebrities are you know often I- invited to join in important policy issues because you know celebrities bring attention and they help with fundraising. It, Chairing the board of an organization like that is a little different. You, you you must really get into policy and I assume senior staff positions, that, that kind of thing. Huh? Yeah, I mean, I, my, my feeling about uh, being semi-famous, which is where I classify myself, um, is, is that not that you can change minds, not that you can do anything uh, material necessarily, but that you can point and and so the kinds of things that I did with Jane Fonda, the protests that I did at the Harvard-Yale game a few years ago, where we protested uh, Harvard and Yale's investments in fossil fuels, um, all of that stuff, I f- feel, is in the category of being able to point. Um, but then, you know, there's getting something done. And... The great blessing of really Oceana having found me, for me, is that week in, week out, day after day, Oceana is making changes around the world, some of them small, some of them dramatic, um, but steadily. Oceana's on the case all the time. It's on the case while I'm doing Law and Order. It's on the case when I'm here at home, you know, so that you you can feel that you're connected to results in a way that um, just pointing doesn't let you do. Well, it's good you're doing the work. Um, so let's take a few minutes and talk about this remarkable acting career of yours. <laughs> um, I thought we'd begin with a clip from The New Law and Order. Uh, and like a lot of the Law and Order plots, the, the first episode is based loosely on some real-life events, which people will recognize. In, in this case, a very prominent black celebrity has been accused by many women of sexual assault and convicted in one case. And in the episode, he's been released from prison after a court ruling. Uh, it departs from the, the real-life story in, in the Law and Order episode in that the celebrity is then found shot to death and the prime suspect is one of his alleged rape victims. And when she is interrogated by police detectives, they lie to her, which is permitted under Supreme Court rulings to get a confession, to get the confession. And in the scene we're going to hear, the prosecutor in the case, played by Hugh Dancy, is in your office trying to convince you that that the prosecution ought to not use the confession at trial, just go on other evidence. And so that's the discussion. Uh, You, as District Attorney Jack McCoy, speaks first. Let's listen. But it's a legal confession, Nolan. Cops are allowed to lie. They are. But it makes the confession less reliable, less ethical. No. 
If it's legal, it's ethical. So, where do we draw the line, Nolan? One lie, two lies, or do we analyze the severity of the lie? Do white lies count? Do we examine how charming a detective is? What about embellishments? Do they count? What if a cop says we have five witnesses instead of four? Do we throw it out? I think we need to analyze it on a case-by-case basis. But to be clear, in this case, it wasn't one little lie or embellishment. Cosgrove spun the suspect upside down. He practically promised her immunity told her that no one in the DA's office would even consider prosecuting her, exploited the fact that she was a rape victim, that she shot the man who assaulted her. Why let the defense tear him apart on cross, shift the focus away from the evidence and onto her sympathetic client and the big bad police department? Like it or not, Nolan, the big bad police department is our partner. And in case you haven't been paying attention, they're under attack. Every decision, every arrest is scrutinized. There are people trying to defund them, for God's sake. And here you are, asking me to castrate them? That is not my intent. I just want to do what is best for this case. Can you win this trial without a confession? Yes. Your call. As long as you're willing to live with the consequences. I am. And that is our guest, Sam Waterston, with you, Dancy, in a new episode of Law & Order, which is back on the air. Um, You know, when you got into this series, and I I don't know that you you probably didn't think you were going to be on it for 16 seasons. Um, I definitely didn't. I signed (laughs) up for one year at a time. Um, What was the appeal of staying so long? I mean... um, I think Law & Order is a show to be proud of being in. And the other things that I might have done were not as exciting. And it also permitted me and even uh, enabled me to do other things like Shakespeare plays and and uh, Long Day's Journey into Night on the spur of the moment with my son playing my son. Uh, these things were made possible by what we were talking about earlier, the celebrity... Uh, that came with doing Law and Order. It, it made it possible on short notice to fill up a theater. Of course, the fact that John Slatter and Elizabeth Franz were also in the company helped a little bit too. But but uh, Law and Order was definitely a big factor, and it kept me out of uh, kept me out of trouble. Which is, you know, I I might have wound up doing other things that I wasn't as glad to be in. Tr- trouble meaning dumb roles or dumb roles or dumb dumb projects, and you know let's not leave out the fact that Lynn and I had four kids who needed to go to school and go to college and uh, and Law and Order paid for it. Right, so a regular regular income and a regular and 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 show business does not provide regular jobs. People don't realize that. I mean, that even an established actor, I mean, there's no guarantee two years from now that the phone's going to be ringing, right? It's <laughs> You're reinventing yourself all the time. I have very dear friends who, who who sort of suddenly found themselves in free fall, stepped off the edge of the world. And in the old days, I used to compare it to stringing beads, you know, and the thing that you really dread, dreaded was coming to the end of a thread, and then what? You, you know, the series... 
one of the th- things that the series is known for is this terrific kind of cast, ensemble cast that rotates, and all these guests' appearances by terrific actors. I I assume maybe we'll be seeing some familiar faces and probably getting to know some 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 new up and comers. Both, yes, definitely, and. There are a lot of TV shows being shot in New York now, but when Law & Order started, it was basically the only show in town, and you couldn't go to the theater in New York without and and read the program without running into... You know, most of the actors have been on Law & Order, too, and it was one of the things that made it possible for actors to continue to pursue the theater in New York. I've been, and I remain, an advocate for Dick Wolf getting a a Tony Award for this because I think he made a material difference to the theater in New York, and and then New York theater paid him back by having really fabulous guest stars on Law & Order. It was like a parade. Yeah, I picture, you know, at casting calls for Broadway shows, people talking to each other about law and order. What were you, a suspect or a witness, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, that's what I figured, too. And, I mean, Elaine Stritch was on Law and Order, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you started acting early, right? I think in, in prep school and then when you were at Yale. When, when did it feel like something that would be a career to you? You know, I'd always been attracted to doing plays from the age of six when my father, who was a teacher at a boarding school in Massachusetts, put me in a play. And I got to stay up late, and I was one of four children, and here I was with my father late at night with all the cool guys at the school. And and my father was interested in, in the theater, and my mother was a painter. So the, I was interested in the arts from a very early age, uh, but uh, I had uh, other ideas about what I was going to become. And then I started acting while I was at Yale. And then I was in a production of Waiting for Godot. And I had an onstage experience that was so exciting that I thought, I, I better watch out or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wind up in this very unstable and insecure business. So I, I tried to swear off the theater for a year, and that lasted for a couple of months. I spent my junior year abroad in France, and before I knew it, I was doing plays there, and then I was in a, I, I fell into a, with a group of actors and a really wonderful teacher, John Barry, who was a huge influence in my life just as a personality. He was, uh, I was a little bit of a, I was pretty shy, and I was from the Northeast, and pretty reserved, let's say. And he just called me out. And uh, by the time I came back for my senior year at Yale, I pretty well knew that uh, acting was what I wanted to do. Sam Waterston appears in the revival of the NBC series Law & Order and the new Hulu series The Dropout about Elizabeth Holmes. He also co-stars in the Netflix series Grace and Frankie, which is wrapping up its final season this spring. We'll hear more of our conversation after a break, and David B. and Cooley will review Julia, the new HBO Max series about Julia Child. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. 
Let's get back to my interview with actor Sam Waterston. He plays District Attorney Jack McCoy in the revival of the NBC series Law and & Order, and he's in the new Hulu series The Dropout, in which he plays former Secretary of State George Shultz. You got a Tony Award, I think, for playing Abe Lincoln in Illinois on Broadway. And you've played Lincoln and done his voice in several projects. And, you know, it's hard not to see a resemblance, I think, uh, in, in your faces a bit. Um, and I read that somewhere that when you were going to play, uh, I think, Gore Vidal's Lincoln, a TV series, you went to the Library of Congress to ask what they had. What did you find? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> what a fool. I, I was in Washington, D.C. for another reason. Uh, I had the afternoon to myself. I went to the Library of Congress. The card files used to be in a big domed room, I think off to the right as you came in. And I was standing there. there. There were vast. I didn't even know where to begin to look. And I was standing there bewildered. And this young woman in a, in a library uniform came up to me and asked me if she could help. And I said, yeah, I, I was wondering if... <laughs> I'm so stupid. I, I, I was wondering if you had anything here about Lincoln. And she just... She was just aghast, and after she recovered herself, she said, well, we are the Lincoln Library. And I said, oh, good. Um, and she said, may, may I ask why you're interested? And I said, well, I'm going to play him. And then she did the most magnificent thing. She ran off and got, I don't know, four or five other people, all with different areas of expertise about Lincoln, and they... They tried to stuff me um, with Lincoln intelligence and experience, uh, you know, in a very, very short period of time. They showed me letters that were, and I held them in my own hands, the letters that he had written. And I had the, the cast of his hand that they showed me. And I mean, it was just, it was just wonderful. Anyway, all of that was winding up, and I said, I have to go. And one of these really nice people who had been trying to help me out said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, just one more thing. And we went down these giant stairs all the way down into the basement of the library, walked all the way down this long, dark hall. It was, it was you know, 4.30, quarter, five, people were packing up and, getting, and leaving or had left. And the guy I was with said, did you close it up yet? And the guy working at the table said, no, but I'm about to. And he said, wait, wait, don't do it, don't do it. I got somebody here, I want, I want him to see this stuff. I don't know, I don't know if this is right, I'm not sure I'm allowed. No, 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 it's on me, I, I promise you it's okay. And, and um, the guy I was with said, uh, hold out your hands. And I held out my hands. And he poured, um, you know, half a dozen objects into my hands and said the contents of Lincoln's pockets on the night he was assassinated. Wow. Wow. Like a, like a window into the guy. It was just amazing what they did. What was there? What, what, what did it make you feel? Well, it feels like uh, an electric current is being shot through your body. It's absolutely galvanizing and, uh, 
And what was there was uh, a little wallet, and in the wallet was a little, if I remember it correctly, it was like an octagonal coin purse or something, you know, that opened up, made out of leather. And I believe it was in it that there was uh, an editorial from a southern paper, I think it was from Richmond, very critical of Lincoln. There was a, there was like a watch fob with a golden L. It was onyx or and black anyway, and it had a golden L on it. And there were some fold-up reading glasses uh, with a little dedication on one of the arms that they were a gift from Billy Herndon, his old law partner. And now it's all sealed up somewhere in a in a display case. So can you say what the experience did for your performance? I think it just rooted it. I think it just made it feel um, deeply connected to real. I don't know if it made it any better, but it certainly made me feel uh, connected. Yeah, yeah. You often play men of integrity and wisdom and experience and in the new Hulu series, The Dropout, which is about Elizabeth Holmes, whose you know, blood testing company Theranos collapsed in fraud charges, you play former Secretary of State uh, George Shultz, who was somebody who Elizabeth Holmes uh, convinced to support her, and, and he did so to some effect, I guess. Um, that was interesting. I mean, that's, a, that's a case of someone with a lot of wisdom kind of being taken in. I'm wondering how you approached that character, that performance. Well, uh Thanks for the compliment about the parts that I've played. <laughs> um, it, you know, let's take George Schultz as a cautionary tale about how one should take those kinds of compliments because, or even um, just how one should think about oneself because we are all, you know, what fools we mortals be applies to each and every one of us and you know, we're really in terrible danger when we forget it. And, and I think that's what, what happened to George Shultz. I, I, I don't think he was any less capable, competent, or wise when he was taken in about the Theranos investment. But, um, but we're all terribly vulnerable. We, we need to take ourselves with major grains of salt. Sam Waterston, it's been fun. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Ah, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Sam Waterston appears in the revival of the NBC series Law & Order and in the Netflix series Grace and Frankie, which is wrapping up its final season this spring. Also in the new Hulu series The Dropout, about Elizabeth Holmes and the blood-testing company Theranos. On Thursday, HBO Max streamed the first three episodes of a new eight-part weekly drama series called Julia. It's about Julia Child and how she came to pioneer the TV cooking show with her 1960s public television series The French Chef. Sarah Lancashire, who co-stars as Caroline in the British series Last Tango in Halifax, stars as Julia, with David Hyde Pierce as her husband, Paul. Our TV critic David Cooley has this review. Hello, I'm Julia Child. Welcome to the French Chef and the first show on our series on French cooking. 
We're going to make beef bourguignon, beef stew, and red wine. And That's the real Julia Child introducing the first recipe and the first episode of her new cooking series on the local Boston public TV station, WGBH. The year was 1963. Julia Child had co-authored a cookbook two years earlier called Mastering the Art of French Cooking, an achievement that was dramatized in the delightful 2009 movie Julie and Julia. That film starred Meryl Streep as Julia Child and Stanley Tucci as her loving and supportive husband, Paul. This HBO Max series could be considered an unofficial sequel. And a wonderful one. The eight episodes of Julia tell the story of how Julia Child brought her cookbook recipes and her enthusiasm for demystifying French cooking to television. The series' creator is Daniel Goldfarb, who previously demonstrated his skills with mid-century period pieces with his work as a writer-producer on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. He and writer-producer Natalia Temesgan tell the story of Julia's entry into TV, and tell it well precisely because they tell it slowly. And like the movie, they focus a lot on the very loving relationship between Paul and Julia Child. Sarah Lancashire, who plays Caroline on the British series Last Tango in Halifax, stars as Julia, and David Hyde Pierce, who played Niles on Frasier, is her husband Paul. Their scenes together, whether they're eating, cuddling, or arguing, are a delight. This series isn't just about the joy of cooking. It's about the joy of loving and of mutual support. The TV series Julia covers the first season of The French Chef, but takes its time with enough detail to squeeze comedy and drama out of all the detours and roadblocks. There's snobbishness in play here, but also sexism and racism. A low-level GBH staffer named Alice, played by Brittany Bradford, notices how much fan mail Julia Child got after her brief appearance on their talk show featuring authors. She supports Julia's idea of shooting a pilot for a proposed TV series based on her cookbook, but the station's leading producer isn't as enthusiastic. He thinks public TV is meant for loftier things. And more practically, he's generated a proposed budget which shows it's unworkable. The producer, Russell Morash, is played by Fran Kranz from Dollhouse. In episode three, he calls staffer Alice and aspiring hopeful TV personality Julia into his office to deliver the bad news and the cold, hard figures. We tried to wrestle the numbers into submission, but the, the, the cold, hard truth is that they don't add up. The costs are too considerable. Yeah. How considerable? Uh, I mean... Well, I could build you a set, but then we'd have to worry about covering food and labor, and and it's a lot. Mucho. Hmm? Well, what's a lot? Yeah. <clears throat> I can do that. Excuse me? Yes, I'll pay for it. I'll cover those costs. Look, I, I know you're disappointed. Oh, no, no. No, I'm not disappointed. This is actually exciting. If money is our only concern, I won't let it stand in our way. No. Now, look. Julia, this no. is wonderful. <laughs> you're, you're sure? Hmm? Yes! Yeah. 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 Yes!
us. Let's do it. The first three episodes of Julia are shown the day the series premieres, with the rest following weekly. I've seen all eight, and I adore them. Several times, I laughed out loud. A credit not only to the script, but to the performers. And Julia has a supremely confident cast. Co-stars include B.B. Newworth, who has many sharply comic scenes, reuniting her with her former Frasier cohort, David Hyde Pierce. And guest stars Isabella Rossellini, James Cromwell, and Judith Light all get time to play and shine. And Christian Clemenson, I should note, deserves special mention for his unforgettable guest performance as fellow chef James Beard. There's a lot more to Julia Child's story, and I hope HBO Max continues with more seasons of Julia. Season one ends before her national success, before she wins a Peabody and an Emmy, and long before Dan Aykroyd lampoons her hilariously on the first season of Saturday Night Live. I'd happily watch all of that and more if HBO Max decides to cook up more years of Julia. Rewatching the first season of The French Chef, those old black and white episodes with the real Julia Child, helped get me through the first months of the pandemic two years ago. And watching this new Julia series now is just as emotionally fulfilling. David Biancooley is a professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey. Coming up, we'll hear from writer A.J. Bame about the story of a mixed-race activist who traveled the Deep South investigating lynchings posing as a white man who went on to become a powerful leader of the NAACP. This is Fresh Air Weekend. When lynchings and other violence against black people were a regular occurrence in the first half of the 20th century, details of many of those crimes were reported by an intrepid mixed-race investigator with blue eyes and straight hair who could move with ease among rural white communities. His name was Walter F. White, and he worked for the NAACP in its early years, eventually becoming chief executive of the organization. As executive secretary, White developed legal strategies to fight discrimination and recruited top litigators for the effort, including future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. White also built the political power of the NAACP, becoming a regular visitor to the White House in the Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Truman administrations, winning important changes in federal policy. Our guest, journalist and author A.J. Bame, tells the story of Walter White in a new biography. He explains that while White was known and admired by millions of black people across the country in his day, his legacy and influence were in the end diminished by a secret in his personal life that would undermine his authority within the NAACP. A.J. Bame is the author of five previous books, including Dewey Defeats Truman and The Accidental President. His latest is White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. A.J. Bame, welcome to Fresh Air. Walter White grew up in Atlanta. He had blonde hair and blue eyes. Uh, what do we know of his ancestors? Firstly, thank you for having me. Um, Walter called himself, quote, the enigma of a black man occupying a white body. And when you see pictures of him, you see, you know, you think, well, this can't possibly be a black man. But if he did um, identify as black. His parents were of the last generation of black Americans born into enslaved families. Um, and you know, his, his complexion represented a, a shameful truth about our nation's history, that generations of enslaved families were born out of illicit encounters between black women 
who had no rights to their bodies, and white male slave owners who had full legal impunity. Now, Walter's great-grandmother on his mother's side, in fact, she birthed six children in the 1830s, fathered by her owner, William Henry Harrison, who later became president of the United States. So that explains, you know, we don't have Walter's face on the cover of the book, but there's a frontispiece, so his complexion is one of the first things you see. And um, that sort of explains why he thought of himself as an enigma. And he realizes this early in life, and he realizes that he could live a future life as a white man, a black man, or both. And he is able to sort of do both and, and go back and forth um, throughout his life. He chose to identify as black, and he wrote later that his first introduction to the race question was in the September 1906 Atlanta race riot. Um, what happened? Well, this was a harrowing event. Walter is, um, he grows up during a relatively progressive period in the city of Atlanta where white people, black people got along well, the economy was doing really well. But uh, the Jim Crow era arrived right as he's starting to come of age. And his father is a mail carrier. And every day after school, Walter goes to a black school, attends a black church, and everybody knows the family in town. So nobody thinks this is odd that a kid who has you know, looks Caucasian, goes to this black school in this black church. So every day after school, he, uh, he goes with his father on, the, on his father's mail route. And in, on this day in September 1906, Walter sees the outbreak of the 1906 Atlanta race riot, which was reported in newspapers all over the country, uh, all over Europe. Um, and he says himself that he witnesses, he's 12 years old, and he witnesses a number of people who were killed. And on the second night of the riot, um, Walter's in his house with his family, and he's on the second floor looking out the window when a mob of uh, white people carrying torches approaches the house, and he can hear the screaming, and they're talking about burning this house down because they believe that this house that the whites are living in is too nice a house for a black family to live in. Um, according to Walter's story, his father hands him a gun, and he's 12 years old, and he's looking out the window, and his father says, Walter, don't shoot until the first man puts his foot on our lawn and then keep on shooting as long as you can. And this is the sort of foundational moment of Walter's mythology, his whole life story. And he says himself, after that night, I knew I never wanted to be a white man. I knew which side I was on. So Walter White, uh, it's a, a relatively affluent black family in Atlanta. He gets an education, attends Atlanta University, and... Um, there, there was a civil rights struggle that erupted over a proposal to eliminate seventh grade in the public schools. He gets active and they contact the NAACP, this new organization in New York. They send a guy down, James Weldon Johnson, who's a charismatic fellow. He is so impressed with Walter White that he invites him to move to New York to take a full-time job with the NAACP. And after some soul-searching with his family, he moves to New York. Two weeks after he gets there, there's a horrific incident in Tennessee where a black man is attacked by a mob and burned at the stake. And the organization wondered what to do about it. Um, somehow the idea came up that Walter White, because he could easily pass as white, go down to Tennessee and investigate. Whose idea was this? <laughs> well, of course it was Walter's, but let me set the scene for you. So Walter's, uh, it's his 12th day in New York, so he's brand new. He wants to impress his bosses, and he has this new routine where he and James Weldon Johnson take a bus from Harlem 
down to the NAACP office, which was on the corner of 5th Avenue and 14th Street. And they're on the bus and reading the newspaper, and they read about this, uh, the torture and killing of a man named James McElheron in a small town in Tennessee. And they get to the office, and they sit around, and they, they gather together, and they say, what are we going to do about this? And John Shalady, Irish-American, he's the CEO of the NAACP at this time. And what they decide to do is what they always did, which was they're going to write a letter to the attorney general in that state. They're going to write a letter to the governor, and they're going to make those letters available to the press and send it to the White House in hopes of pressuring somebody to do something. Because when these cases happened, these lynchings happened at this time, almost invariably, no one would ever be charged with any crimes. So Walter's sitting there in the office, it's his 12th day, and he says, wait a minute, what if I went down there and got the facts myself? Um, I grew up in the South. I've been exposed to white America and the South and black America. I can easily slip in there and get the facts posing as a white man. And everybody disagrees. They think this is too dangerous, but Walter presses on and uh, they relent. And so on this uh, spring day in 1918, Walter gets on a train and he goes to Chattanooga, Tennessee, poses as a white man so he could check into a hotel. And in the next morning, takes a train to this tiny town of Estill Springs, Tennessee. And he begins his first undercover investigation, first of over 40 of these, posing as a white man. And he makes up this persona. He says he is the traveling salesman with the, quote, Excellento Medicine Company. He is a completely fictitious person. And he goes into the town store and he begins this investigation. It takes him one day, one day to uncover all of the facts of what happened to James McElheron, which was this horrendous event um, rendered before a large crowd of white people. So he gets this information, uh, comes back to New York, gets all the details about this horrific story. Uh, What happens? What does he do with it? Well, Walter writes this article in The Crisis. So the um, NAACP has a magazine called The Crisis. It's distributed nationally through the branches of the NAACP, and it's edited by W.E.B. Du Bois. Walter writes this story, and it causes what he calls a mini sensation. And... It riles people up. And this is a very good thing because the NAACP is trying to recruit. And so suddenly you have people writing into the office saying, this story is incredible. We want to help. What can we do? How can we help? Can we give money? And so Walter, you know, he realizes this light bulb goes off in his head and in, in the heads of the other people working with him that we can do something with this. This is extraordinarily effective. So Walter White had come to New York to join the NAACP in 1918 at the age of, what, 25 or so. By 1929, he is, in effect, the de facto leader of this growing national organization. He was acting secretary but then got the the full-time job. Um, And I think what's remarkable is that he was a real strategic thinker and he realized that they weren't going to stop this – you know, by exposing facts and asking local authorities to prosecute, that wasn't going to happen. And he th- said, you know, uh, black Americans needed real political power. And he began talking about black Americans reconsidering their unquestioned loyalty to the Republican Party because he felt that the Republican Party had ignored them. And one of the interesting things that he did was got the organization involved in a Supreme Court nomination fight in 1930. This happens nowadays. But he thought this was an important battle to fight. Then tell us what happened. So Walter um, opens up his newspaper one day, and he's just become 
just become the leader of the NAACP. He's uh, acting secretary in 1929. And in 1930, Herbert Hoover uh, decides that he's going to try to appoint this North Carolina uh, judge, federal judge, to the Supreme Court to fill a vacant seat. Walter does a little bit of research, and he finds that at one point this judge ran for governor, and when he did so, he made some uh, surprisingly racist statements, and I can read them to you. This judge Parker's name is Parker, John J. Parker. He said, the participation of the Negro in politics is a source of evil and danger to both races and is not desired by the wise man in either race. The judge also said at one point, if I should be elected governor of North Carolina and find that my election was due to one Negro vote, I would immediately resign my office. So Walter decides the first thing he's going to do as head of the NAACP is to fight against this confirmation. And so he launches a nationwide fight. No Supreme Court pick by a president had been blocked in the entire 20th century. So when this happens in 1930, it makes news. And so Walter leads this fight to block the confirmation of Judge Parker, and he wins. Yeah, it was just remarkable that that, that, that happened. Um, and then afterward, um, there was a, a senator in Ohio who had, uh, I guess Roscoe McCullough was his name, who had voted to put Judge Parker on the bench despite these racist statements. And he mobilized the NAACP to defeat this Republican senator for reelection. In effect, kind of making the point that you're not going to ignore our interests um, and simply be assured re-election. It worked. It worked. Walter and the NAACP led a fight to defeat anyone in Congress who supported the confirmation of Judge Parker. So, and this went on for years. And what he was doing wisely, politically, was saying, if you want the black vote, which is becoming more and more powerful, during this time, um, you need to step up and meet some of our demands. You know, the other part of the story is that Walter White, you know, he built the organization, the NAACP, that had many, many more um, chapters around the country, um, began raising money for important litigation for, you know, equal rights to attend schools, for voting rights in some cases, with, with some victories. And he became a player in national politics. But... In his later years, um, events in his private life and marriage would affect his standing in the movement and his legacy. You know, tell us what happened here. Now, Walter identifies as a black man, and he really, by the, you know, by the late 1930s, he's literally the face of black power. He is, and I'm quoting a newspaper article about him, as a go-getter, Mr. White's record is unparalleled in Negro life. That was basically, not basically, that was his reputation at the time, unquestioned. In the starting in the late 1930s, all the way to his death. Now, Walter had a secret. Um, he had a black wife and his children were black, but he had a loveless marriage and he was desperately in love with a woman named Poppy Cannon. And he was, a, you know, a public figure. He was married and she was white. And so for many years, he struggled with this love, uh, knowing that if it was exposed his reputation would be utterly destroyed. So for most of those years, he had no relationship and not even any contact with him, with her. Um, there's this moment where during World War II, he's, he goes overseas to find out how democracy is functioning on the front line. And he's in a military plane and it crashes and he nearly dies. And he has this, what you might call a come to Jesus moment, 
where uh, he knows he's getting older and he wants to be in love. And he decides that he's going to do something about it. And he knows that when the world finds out about this, he's going to be, his reputation will be shattered. It wasn't handled particularly well from, from a communications point of view. I mean, life is messy. Um, and we also know that he had a heart attack in 1947, another one in 1948. And, and he eventually uh, tells his wife, Gladys, she's on her way to Mexico and, and that she can get a divorce there. And it sort of comes out that he has had a quiet marriage with Poppy Cannon in Manhattan. How did the NAACP react? How did black Americans across the country, how did his family react to this union? He knew going into this it wasn't going to go well. So he took a leave of absence from the NAACP. He at this time had been chief executive for almost two decades. Um, and he goes on this around-the-world um, radio news program tour without telling anyone that he obtained a divorce and that he had married this woman in a private ceremony. So while he's traveling abroad, this story explodes. It becomes a gossip sensation. Headlines all over the place, and people are very, very upset. And in my research, I really dug into all of the letters that were written between members of the NAACP leadership and powerful black Americans, what their opinion was of this move. And without a doubt, they were devastated. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was on the board of the NAACP. She resigned. He eventually, Walter convinced her uh, to rescind her resignation. But essentially, Walter's leadership was destroyed. His reputation was destroyed. His children refused to speak to him, and they, they never spoke to him again. His son even dropped the name White from the, the end of his name because he didn't want to be associated with his father because he was so hurt by what his father did. Is, is that why we, we, we don't know who Walter White is today, do you think? Yeah, there are two reasons why. One is because, yes, he had the scandal at the end of his life, really shattered his reputation, destroyed his base of power. Um, and the other reason is, really, he died in 1955, right at the same year of the Montgomery bus boycott, right at the, the very year where Martin Luther King Jr. came on the scene as a, as a national political figure, but also right at the same time that television cameras arrived. And there was no way this new generation of, of, uh, of black civil rights leader was going to have a man with white skin, you know, be the foundation, the face of their movement. That wasn't going to happen. And so in remarkable speed, after Walter's death in 1955 of not one but numerous heart attacks, he, his legacy disappeared from, from the history books and from the American scene. Well, A.J. Bain, thanks so much for speaking with us and, and sharing the story. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. A.J. Bain's new book is White Lies, The Double Life of Walter F. White and America's Darkest Secret. A national anti-lynching bill, one of the unmet goals of the NAACP under White's leadership, was finally enacted by Congress last month. Fresh Air Weekend was produced this week by Heidi Saman. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. <laughs> <laughs>